Okay, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. If you've got a Bible, could you go to Micah chapter 6? Micah chapter 6 in our Old Testament, and we will be, get there momentarily. Yesterday, um, Saturday, we had a long day, but a really good day. Uh, my wife and I, Melanie, went with our friends Ben and Charlotte. We went down to Bishop Stortford, where we used to live, to attend a happily ever after party of uh, a young lady named Joe Gray, who used to be part of the church here when we were first um, starting. And she met, uh, she went traveling and she met a man uh, named Rich and they got married. They actually got married a few weeks ago in Australia uh, on a beach where they'd met. We got up early in the morning to watch it because you can do that now. Live stream beach weddings from the other side of the world. Um, and so we watched that, but then we went down for the party, and Melanie and I have been asked to kind of do a blessing for them as part of their celebration, so we did that. And what it struck me again when you go to a wedding and you see people get married and you hear them say their vows, because they got up and they did their vows in front of all the friends and family, it was a reminder of whether when two individuals get married to each other, what they're committing to. And as they read their vows, beautiful vows that they'd read, uh, written themselves, they were, they were saying they were giving themselves completely to the other person. They were giving everything to the other person. It wasn't just the good bits, the best bits, the bits you put on show. It was actually they were giving all that they were. They were giving their best bits and their worst bits. They were giving their richer and their poorer, their sickness and in health, everything to the other person. And it was lovely just to be there and celebrate that and see their commitment and their clear love for one another. And what we're going to be looking at today as we go through Micah chapter 6 is this idea that we are to give everything. Just like in a marriage, if you're going to make a marriage work, marriage can be risky business. But if you're going to make it work over the long haul, you need to commit totally and give everything. So we're in Micah chapter 6. We've been going through the book of Micah as a church. Uh, we're on chapter 6 today, chapter 7 next week, and then we will be done. Context here, the prophet Micah has been called by God, empowered by God to speak to God's people. And he's speaking to the nation of Israel at that time, which has split Due to their sin, it was one nation under one king. After Solomon, the great King Solomon, very wise man, the kingdom had split in two to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and they were in a state of great spiritual decline. The heritage of their past was just a distant memory. They were corrupt through and through, and they'd had a series of kings, both in the north in Israel in the south in Judah, that were bad and had led the people away from God and God raised up the prophet Micah to come and speak to his people and to call them back. And we've seen through uh, the book of Micah that it breaks down into three cycles, if you will, where the prophet begins with the word hear, where he's calling God's people to listen to what God has to say to them, calling them to repent, to live holy lives. And he begins by pronouncing judgment on them for their sin, but then also finishing with a message of hope. And the first cycle was chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then the second cycle was chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, which we finished last week. And then today we're starting the third and final cycle of the book of Micah, where he is calling God's people to come back and saying, it's time. 
It's time to come back. It's time to get right with the Lord. And what we've got here in chapter 6 is we see a nation, a people who are going through the motions of what it means to serve and to worship the Lord. But there is no heart change behind their actions. They're basically doing the bare minimum of religious commitment, but actually their actions and their practices are completely corrupt. And what we find in this section of Micah is that the Lord is saying, I want your heart and your lifestyle to marry up. I want everything. You can't get away with just doing this half-heartedly. You have to give everything. So, big idea. Jesus wants us to follow him with our whole heart that in turn affects our whole life. In short, he wants everything. He wants everything. So if you found Micah, I'm going to read it through to you, a little bit by little bit, and comment as we go. We're going to have two sections here. There's verses 1 to 8, which is the first lawsuit, and the second section, verses 9 to 16, is the second lawsuit. And what we begin, it's the beginning of a new cycle, um, and what we find is that the Lord is coming to his people and bringing a case against them, bringing a lawsuit against them. And these first eight verses is the Lord is bringing a lawsuit against his people. It begins with a summons, a court summons. You must come to court. A jury is appointed. The case is presented. The accused then respond, and then the Lord responds to the accused. So verses 1 and 2, there is a summons and the jury is appointed. It begins, verse 1, that word here. We've seen that at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 1 is the beginning of this next cycle, this final cycle. And it says, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the, hear, the, sorry, the hills hear your voice. Hear you, mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And your enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. And he will contend with Israel. So the Lord is coming to bring a case. If you've ever been on the receiving end of the lawsuit, I haven't. But I can imagine it being a terrifying ordeal. Someone wants to bring a case against you. They think you've done something wrong. But here, I think it would, we can say it's gone to next level... Because the one bringing the law ca- the case is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he's coming against his people. He says, I've got issue with you about how you've been acting. And if, as you've been, if you've been following us as we've gone through Micah, you've got a pretty good idea of what he's going to say because he's already been talking to his people about them. And he summons the very mountains and the hills to bear witness to what he's going to say. They've actually served as the jury. And they, they represent an enduring witness because the mountains and the hills, they don't change from generation to generation to generation. They're just there, observing, looming over, being around. And they've seen everything that God's people has done. And they also remind God's people because when God comes to meet his people, where does he invariably meet them? On mountains. The covenant was formed on Mount Sinai where God spoke to Moses and gave him the law. And we've seen already through Micah how they have forsaken the law and consistently broken it. Even if we skip over to the New Testament, there's the great moment when Jesus reveals his glory to disciples is on a mountain. 
transfiguration. So God comes and he's saying, but the mountains now are going to bear witness against you. You've got to make your case, plead your defense. And then, so before we do that, the Lord presents his case, verses 3, 4, and 5. He says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So the Lord here is coming and presenting his case to his people. And he begins, my people. And this is a reference to God's covenant, love, and relationship with people. They are his people. God chose them. Before you get the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, you have Exodus chapter 19, where God says, you are my special people, my treasured possession. I have chosen you out of the nations. God's saying, these are the people he loves, he's for, but actually he's now asked these rhetorical questions. What have I done to you to deserve this? Have I wearied you? You have to answer me. And then what the Lord does is he provides his case, which are described in verse 5 as his righteous acts, and he describes four things that he has done for the people of God. What he's done for this nation, this tiny, insignificant slave nation who were in Egypt, and he chose them and he brought them out and honored his promises he'd given to Abraham back in Genesis. And he says this, first one he says, he brought them out and redeemed them from slavery. He hadn't been a burden to them. They were under slavery and he came and called them out. He got them. They were, they were lost. They, they were under a tyrannical ruler with no hope of escape. They were hopeless and helpless, this people. And if you read about that at the beginning of the book of Exodus, it was a sorry state they were in. But God, by his power and his grace and his love, called them out, did mighty acts, plagues, in the Red Sea, and he brought them out to himself in honoring his own promises. And he loved them and cared for them, so he redeemed them from slavery. Then it says he provided them godly leaders to follow. So he didn't just bring them out from slavery and said, well, off you go. <laughs> I've saved you. The prison door's open. You can go. No, he says, I'll bring men and women to lead you. And he brings Moses, the lawgiver and prophet, to speak the word of God to this fledgling nation of Israel that had come out of captivity. Aaron, he's the high priest and the mediator between man and God. So the people can bring their offerings and he can mediate between man and God so they can come into God's presence. When we did the book of Leviticus, we saw all about how this works. So how unholy people can come before a holy God. And there's Miriam. Described as a prophetess, she was the poet who led the people of God in worship as they came out of slavery. So God's saying, I've given you people to lead you and guide you in my ways, in worship, in coming before me, in hearing my word. So I've done that. Then it says, the third thing he says is, I have turned your enemies' curses into blessing. And he references Balak. And Balaam, if you go and read Numbers 22, 23, 24, you will see the story. And in short, Balak, the king of Moab, saw this nation coming out of Egypt and he saw them as a threat. So he went and hired a false prophet named Balaam to go and curse them. We've got to, we've got to curse them. We've got to get rid of them. Go and speak curses over them. So Balaam climbs up a mountain 
to curse the people of Israel, but because of the presence and the power of God, he can only speak blessings. And so God said that even those who set themselves against you, those who would come and attack you, make war with you, seek evil of you, says, I have frustrated their plans. That's what I've done for you. And then the fourth and final thing is he says is, I have then brought you into the land that I promised to you through Abraham in the generations before. The, the two references to the places, Shittim and Gilgal, everyone likes that word Shittim, don't they? Saying that because you can get away with saying that, can't you? Especially the teenagers, love it. But those represent two places that are either side of the Jordan. When the people of God entered the promised land, they went through the Jordan. We did the book of Moses many years, uh, sorry, book of Joshua many years ago. Moses had died, Joshua was leading the people. God parted the Jordan and the people of God went through it. And on one side they um, uh, camped in Shittim, the second time they camped in Gilgal. So it's a reminder that I brought you into this land that you're living in. I have given you this land. And so what God is saying, these, these, these things that I've done demonstrate my character to you. This is what I've done for you. I am good to you. I love you. I'm all over you. And then the people of God respond, verses 6 and 7. It says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? And so the people of God respond and they've been kind of, they respond in one voice as the prophet speaks. And they're basically saying, Lord, how can we please you? How can we please you? And they immediately go to kind of acts of worship, acts of ceremony. If we do this, will it be all right? If we do this, they're trying to earn the favor of God. And the favor and the love of God cannot be earned. It is not a reward for your actions or your endeavor. It is not something that can be bought and traded. It is something that is given freely by God. And they, they reference the burnt offerings. And the burnt offerings was, we saw in Leviticus is that the worshiper would bring it and it was com- completely consumed by fire and went up as an offering to God. So it was a picture of giving everything to the Lord. So if we bring a burnt offering, will, will, will that cut it? If we bring a calf, and the calf was considered one like, like, like the best, the premium, we give that premium offering, will that be enough? Then they talk about quantity. If we give more, if we give 10,000 rams, or sorry, 10,000 rams and rams, but thousands of rams, they're trying to up the ante. Is that what it is? And then they go completely overboard, and they say, well, if we give my firstborn child as a sacrifice, will that be Okay. And you're like, you have completely lost the plot here because you're now talking about practices which are utterly forbidden by God's laws and are practices that are done by the pagan nations around Israel and they have been forbidden by the Lord. And they're saying, is that what it takes? Is that okay? If we do this stuff, will it be all right? If we give you that, that everything, if all these things, is that what it's going to be? And the Lord says, No. That's not what it's about. It's not about you working harder or doing more actions. And verse 8, we find what the demand of the Lord is for his people. And this is the most famous verse in the book of Micah. Um, If you're not familiar with the book of Micah, you might well know this verse. And it says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, And walk humbly with your God. 
What the Lord is asking for them isn't more activity and action. It's not that we'll just add more religious observance to what we're doing. What the Lord wants is a worshipping heart. He doesn't just want actions, external lifestyle. He wants internal change, which will then lead to external lifestyle. God wants everything. He wants everything. It says he wants you to do justice or act justly. And we've seen this back in chapter 3. When we're talking about justice, we're talking about the, the justice is a representation of the character of God how he would conduct the land. And we've seen the land is an utter mess, corruption all the way through the power structures there. God said, actually, if you're going to follow me, you are going to be an individual. You're going to be a nation who does justice. There's going to be a personal commitment in your life to do what is right and good. The second thing he says, you are to love kindness. This is a reflection of the loving, steadfast love and kindness of God. It is an expression as God's love towards his covenant people and all that he has done. That then is expressed by his people to others around. And it will affect all areas of life and dealing with other individuals. And then finally it says you are to walk humbly with me, with God. And that is an expression of the right relationship that the people of God are to walk in with their God. Knowing who he is, knowing who they are. And being careful to live holy and righteous lives under him. What Micah is spelling out here is that God is repelled by sacrifices and religious acts that are not backed up by a worshipping heart. The outward expression on its own is not enough. It needs to be married up with a worshipping heart. It needs to be everything. Turning up to church isn't enough. Turning up church with a worshipping heart and desire to meet with God and be with his people is what he wants. Going through the motions is not enough. God wants everything. He wants justice. He wants to see mercy. He wants faithfulness from his people that begins in the heart outside but then is expressed outward in actions. It's got to be all of it. Faithful worship is not enough. It must be accompanied by faithful living and right actions before the Lord. And so that's his problem with them. They're saying, well, if we do more, if we, we make more, we do more sacrifices, he's saying, no, 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 that's not it. You've got to come back to what's going on inside. Let's move on. Let's look at the second lawsuit, going in verses 9 to 16. So the Lord's got that first problem with his people. He now brings another lawsuit in this one, and it begins with an opening statement, then there's a catalogue of the sins um, of the people, an announcement of punishment, of judgment for those sins, and then finally a kind of a summary statement at the end. So if you found it in your Bible, we're going to verse 9 now. It says, The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Because of the people of God are far from God, we've seen that throughout the book, he speaks a rebuke to them. The voice of the Lord is the one who is speaking. And just as a word of kind of a side note, when the voice of the Lord goes forth, what should the people of God be doing? <laughs> Listening, taking note. It began with here, didn't it, in verse 1. And Jesus himself, when he came, as God the Son, he's like, those who've got ears to hear, let them hear. You've got to be listening. You've got to be understanding. And the voice of the Lord is coming. 
And he's saying he comes to the city, which represents the capital, Jerusalem, which stands away as kind of a shorthand that stands for the people of God. And it is sound wisdom to fear your name, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We saw that when we looked at Proverbs. A right reverent awe of who God is is beginning of understanding how the world works and how we should function as our place in it. And the God has come to speak a word of divine punishment and judgment. And we know from looking through the book of Micah, we know that there's this threat of invasion from Assyria. We know the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed in 722 BC by Assyria. Micah witnessed that as the prophet proclaiming judgment, proclaiming repentance to his people, and he saw Israel destroyed. And then the, um, the Assyrian army then evaded Judah in the south and came right up to the walls of Jerusalem and cut their way through um, the country. Saying, so he's aware of what's happening and saying, actually, there is a rod coming to you because of your sin. And then he goes on in verse 10 to 12 of a catalog of the things that the people of God have been doing. He says, can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. And this is a an indictment on the uh, commercial and social sins of the nation. The Lord speaks in the first person, I. He goes, I can't forget any longer. I cannot ignore what's going on. You've got the law. You've got your teachers. But they are failing to teach you what you're doing and how to live. And as a result, these terrible actions are coming out. And they've been stored up. And God is using kind of pictures here like... Uh, uh, Merchants would have storehouses with all their goods that they're trading. And I said, I've actually stored up your sins because I cannot overlook them. And he highlights that how they've been acting commercially. They've used wicked scales and a bag of deceitful weights back then. If they were, you were going to trade anything, you had to weigh it out. I'm going to trade you some of this for some of that. And what the merchants would have been using, they'd have a bag of deceitful scales. And some of their weights would have weighed more than it said. And some of their weights would have weighed less than it said. And you can use them to con the person you're doing business with. Because if you use your light scales, you say, oh, look, I'm going to give you this many bushels of whatever. And I'll use my light scales. Oh, look, that's how much it is. But then when you weigh out theirs, you put the heavy scales on so you don't get some, well, you get more than what it is. And so it's just, it's just shady business dealings to con people. Say, this is what you're doing. This is what you're doing. And it's basically saying, should someone like this be acquitted? No, they shouldn't. They should suffer. And it says, actually, your inhabitant speaks lies, lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. These are people who constantly are not speaking the truth. They rip people off. This is the, the, the way that business is done. And it is an offense to God. It is horrible. They basically cannot be trusted. The people of God cannot be trusted in their dealings with one another the Lord is saying, which is an incredible indictment on them considering how the Lord would ask them to live. As particularly also we've just seen in verse 8, what does the Lord want for them? Well, to, to, to act justly, that's not just. And to, to love kindness, well, that's not very kind. And that's not an expression of walking humbly with God under his laws and his rules. You are not doing what you've been asked to do. 
And then we get the announcement of punishment, verses 13 to 15. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat and not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve. And what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine. And so the therefore there is just to follow on from the previous section. Because of your sin, this is what you're gonna, is going to happen to you. And we actually find literally these words. If you go back to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, this is an outworking um, of what God had said to his people. If you do not follow my laws. If you do, you're going to get all these blessings. If you don't, this is what's going to happen. And this is basically the outworking of the word of God on his people, which they would have known, they would have learned. Saying, this is what is going to happen to you. And it's described in graphic language. There's going to be a grievous blow. You're going to be struck. The places that you live that you think are so wonderful, ornate buildings, palaces, homes, they're going to be made desolate. The kingdom in the north will be destroyed. There will be an invasion of the southern kingdom, which ultimately one day would be destroyed as well. And the reason is very clear. It's because of your sins. And as a result, the food that you think you've stored and you've got, you will lose due to famine and war and uh, evading armies taking it. The savings, what you stored up, that will also be destroyed. That will come to nothing. You will not have them. You will not be able to preserve. There will be a loss of harvest. The crops that you put faith in, the, the, um, the olives and the grapes, which give you good things, the oil and the wine, that will not be yours. You will not have them. All the blessings that come from God on his people will ter- be turned ultimately into curses. All their hard work on their effort will ultimately come to nothing. And it leaves us with this stark truth that the prophet is lying out before God's people saying, if you refuse to give God everything, you end up with nothing. If you refuse to give God everything, you ultimately end up with nothing. And that's what he's saying to his people. you've, You've cheated me. You're cheating one another. You haven't given me everything, so ultimately you'll end up with nothing. And then we have verse 16, the kind of final closing statement of this lawsuit. It says, for you've kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you've walked in their councils, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. And Lord, uh, the prophet there references Omri and Ahab, who are two kings of the northern kingdom who were known for bringing in evil, false worship to the people of God. We looked at them when we did the series on Elijah. Um, uh, King Ahab was there, uh, famous sort of stories there, but they were known. There was a dynasty that was set up in northern Israel that were known for their horrific actions and false worship. Um, We also find out that they would... um, misuse power and authority. There was the incident with Naboth where he was murdered because he wouldn't give up his inheritance by um, Ahab and his wife Jezebel and as a result they were severely judged. And what the, um, the 
prophet is actually saying, this has happened. You've witnessed what's happened to the northern kingdom, this destruction that has come upon them by this foreign power. You know about their evil practices. You know the things that they did. You knew the false worship of Baal that came in and what happened. And he says, this is going to happen to you. This is going to be the consequences of your actions. This is the path you're on as my people. This is where you're going to, though, that, you're, that where you live will become a desolation and that you will just be scorned and hissed at by other people because you will effectively come to nothing. So that's the end of chapter 6. Chapter 7 is going to get a little better because the cycles work like that. Yeah, judgment, then salvation, but we've got to look at, look at it all. So let's have a little bit of application um, and then we will finish. We've been looking at this series, It's Time. It's time for, and this today I want to remind you that it's time for everything. It's time for everything. In this chapter, the Lord has outlined the sins of his people, but he's also outlined what he expects of them. And in response to God's amazing grace, the people of God have been living under rebellion towards him, and they are therefore going to face the consequences of their sins. But the the situation of the people of Israel that we've just read about in the Bible is a very similar situation that we find ourselves in as sinful men and women because the reality is we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We are guilty of rebellion and sin against the one who made us. And call it, we have willfully dishonored God and chosen to go our own way that we may live lives according to our rules and not his. When we refuse to give him everything, we end up with nothing. And into this situation, the Lord himself comes. The Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to earth, lived a perfect life under God's law, dies in our place and suffers the consequences for our actions. He actually gives himself and he gives everything. The Lord gives everything to deal with our problem. He rises from death. He ascends to heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit to be with his people. And if you're not a believer here and you don't know Jesus, that is the message for you today, to give your everything to him, to repent of your sins, turn around, go the other way, put your faith and trust in Jesus. But if you are a believer in Jesus, we still have challenges here because we find ourselves in a similar position to Israel. We've been redeemed from slavery to sin. We've been given godly men and women to follow Think about your journey of how you came to faith. Think of the men and women who cared for you and led you to where you are now. They might be your parents or your grandparents, your kids or youth leaders, church leaders, so forth. Those people, God has given you their leaders. You have been showered with blessings of God, grace and mercy that he's poured out on you through the Holy Spirit. Like Israel, you've been given everything, an inheritance of his people, you're part of the church, and he has plans and purposes for you in this life and the next. Like Israel, you too are truly loved and blessed by the Lord, and that is a great place to be. And what is our response to that? To give our everything. To give our everything. So this begs a question for us, church. What do we do with this? Are you living in light of what God has done for you? Not trying to earn his favor. Well, if I do this, I do that. I'll get more spiritual brownie points. But as a heartfelt response to him. Are you going through the motions of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? 
got nothing better to do this morning, so I'll come here. All my other, pla- other plans, are, I've got a window, I'll come here. I don't have a hobby thing on this morning. I'm not too tired. I'll get up, I'll come to church. Are you just going through the motions, or are you coming as a heartfelt response to who God is, what he's done, what he's called you to be, the people he's made you a part of? Does your life match up with what God says? Are you living a life of double standards or are you living a life of devotion to him in all areas of your life? Because we have been called very clearly there in verse 8. We are to be men and women who do justice, who act justly, who, who, who act justly. We are to love the just of God and his kingdoms, to do what is right and good wherever we find ourselves, to serve the poor, the vulnerable, to look like Jesus in the world. We are to speak out when we see right, um, poor actions and we are to seek right conduct in all our dealings, whether that be at home, at school, at work, with our friends. And this is particularly relevant if you find yourself in a position of authority. Many of you stand in positions of authority in homes and workplaces where you're responsible for others. In those places, we are to conduct ourselves the way the Lord would have us. We are to love kindness. We are to treat others the way that the Lord treated us. If you're ever unsure, who do you look at? Jesus. How did Jesus serve and love those around him? And some of them were incredibly incredible people. There were people who were bad. There were people who were just stupid. <laughs> His disciples, God bless them. We're, even in those situations, you can put yourself in there. Jesus treated them with kindness and grace and mercy, and he drew them in. He loved the unlovely. He loved the outsider. Let me just be honest. It's really easy to love the lovely. It really is. And I love being in church with lovely people because you're easy to love. It's the unlovely ones I struggle with. Just being honest, I know it's hard, we're in church, but I'm trying to be honest with you. But that is what God has asked us to do, to love everyone, to love the unlovely as well, to show kindness and grace to them, the way that he has shown kindness and grace to us. And we are to walk humbly with our God, which means we are to have an ongoing, growing relationship with our Father in heaven mediated through Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are to be men and women of the word, of prayer, and of his community, loving and serving humbly, remembering who he is, remembering who we are before him. Humility is not thinking of yourself less, it's just thinking less of yourself. It's reminding ourselves of the wonderful God we have and all he's done for us and then what he's called us to do. And so, just to finish, if God wants everything... What do you need to hand over to him today? If God wants everything, all areas of your life, what do you need to hand over to him today, now? The Holy Spirit's speaking to you. You know what it is. Do you mind standing? Can the band come up? We're going to sing and worship, but what I'd love to lead us in just before we do that is to lead us in a moment where you do some business with the Lord and then we will respond in heartfelt worship to God. And the God loves you and he is for you.
and there is grace available. This isn't a moment to feel wretched and condemned. This is a moment to feel loved, accepted, welcomed, called in to your Father in heaven's throne room and do business with him. So if I just kind of lead you in a moment, maybe you want to do that business with him. I'll start with a a little bit of maybe a moment of silence. You know what's on your heart. You know what the Lord has been staring. So why don't you just take a moment to bring that before the Lord and say, Lord, I know what it is I need to hand over to you today. Here it is. And name it specifically before him. Preferably out loud, but you can still whisper out loud because <laughs> there's lots of people here. But why don't you just take a moment to do that? Now I'm just going to pray that as we sort of do the next section of our meeting and then head out into the, the rest of our day and the new week, I'm going to pray that by the power of the Spirit we would be men and women who do justice, who love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. And if, that's, if you feel like, yeah, yeah, I want to do that, maybe you want to open your hands and I'm just going to pray for you and then we're going to respond with some singing lifting up the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for your grace and mercy poured out on your people. We thank you that you've redeemed us from slavery. We thank you that you've given us godly men and women who lead us and guide us in your life. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the blessings that you've poured out on us through the church, through your word, through others. We thank you for the great inheritance that we can look forward to you, to you in you in this life and the next, Lord God. We thank you, and God. We want to say, as your people, we want to give you everything. We thank you for your forgiveness when we mess up. We thank you for your grace and mercy in times of trouble. Lord Jesus, we want to do justice in all that we say and do. We want to love kindness towards everyone around us, particularly the unlovely. And we want to walk humbly with you all the days of our lives. And God's people said,